go. Today's our day. This is it. Come on, guys. We can do it. Therese. See you at the finish line. With the kinds of push right, starts you guys are go. capable of, we might actually see the Jamaicans win an Olympic medal. So this is it. We could see history in the making. Feel the rhythm. Feel the rhyme. Get on up. It's bobsled time. Defying the odds, four athletes compete as Jamaica's first Olympic bobsledding team. Listen as we talk about the law that requires montages, video game speed runs, and a stupid thing for a commentator to say. Then we find out if 1993's cool running stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Test of Time podcast. I'm James Brief, and joining me as always is my buddy, my co-host, the director of this podcast, Alan Noah. Hi, that's me, Alan Noah. How are you doing today, James? I'm doing well. I'm excited. I love the Olympics. But, uh, you know, that with the Olympics, there's something interesting that I've been watching a lot lately. Have you ever watched speedruns? You mean video game speedruns? Yes, exactly. Video game speedruns. Okay, so because you're excited for the Olympics, you're watching video game speedruns? No, not at all. Just because we're talking about the Olympics, and I was just thinking of, uh, you know, speed, bobsled, and I've been watching speedruns. Oh, okay. Um, No, I don't really watch a lot of speedruns. I know of them, but uh, no, it's not like a thing I just actively will go on YouTube and look for. It's interesting because I'll put on a game, you know, one of these games that I just know so well, and it'll be like Super Mario Brothers or Mario 3 or The Legend of Zelda or, you know, later games too, Mario 64. And just watching them do these games, it's just very interesting watching these other people's techniques on how to do it. It's like I've never even thought of doing some of these things. And I'm not talking about little exploits like bugs, but it's just a different way of doing things. I mean, if you're talking about a game Super Nintendo or later, a speedrun's gonna be at least 15, 20 minutes or longer, right? I mean, like, even some of those more basic games, even if you're doing them pretty quick, it's still gonna be like a long YouTube video, right? Oh, I mean, there'll be Super Mario 3 speedrun, no warp zones, you know, something like that. Or they're doing every Mario through Mario 64 in under one hour where they will use warps and stuff. Have you yourself ever done a speedrun? No, but, you know, it seems like it's very easy. And while you're watching it, there are people watching it live who don't realize that they're about to watch a world record. So, you know, they're watching the chat box in the corner and they're congratulating him as he's like getting to, oh, he beat the, uh, you know, level 8-2. That's a really tough world. And now he's he might actually do it if he can get past this one very quickly. And, you know, I think there's going to be only a finite number of games that this will appeal to me for. I just Googled it. The fastest runs on the original Super Mario Brothers for Nintendo are under five minutes. 
I did do, I guess, a speed run. I didn't record it because it was in college. So probably it was 1999 or something. But I did beat Super Mario Brothers 1 in eight and a half minutes. I remember that. And I was very, very proud of myself. That's just, you know, using the warp zones. Obviously, it's not dying at all. It's like really getting every jump right in those really hard levels in the eighth world. But I thought eight and a half minutes was damn impressive. Seeing that people have done it in under five, it's like, well, how the hell do they do that? If you watch it, you'll see where they cut seconds here and there. Sure. But I also do think that it is related to the movie we're talking about today, Cool Runnings, and also just the Olympics in general, where, you know, to really have like the world record time, you're shaving off seconds fractions of a second there's a moment in cool runnings where they have like one run down the course and it's horrible it's terrible it's a disaster and then they have another run that's much much better and it's like a you know like they're all really happy about it and the difference in the times is like i don't remember exactly but three seconds four seconds something like that that makes all the difference you know when you're competing at such a high level A second is an eternity. But let's talk about Cool Runnings. Uh, This is a movie that I had never seen before, which is weird, but I just never got around to it. But it's inspired by the real-life story of the first Jamaican Olympic bobsled team, although the movie does take several liberties with what actually happened. But in the movie, a sprinter named Doris has hopes of competing in the Summer Olympics. But when a fellow runner trips him during a qualifying race, he has to change his plans. With the help of his friend Sanka and a former Olympian named Irv Blitzer, Doris puts together a four-man bobsled team to compete in the Winter Olympics. Doris, Sanka, and their teammates Yule and Junior aren't used to the cold, and they're not taken seriously by their competitors. The odds are against them, but they work hard, and they turn some heads when they compete. So I feel like this was a big hit, even though I didn't see it in the theater or ever. This did well for Disney, right? Yeah, and you know, to Disney's credit, when you hear a story like this, it sounds like, you know, just such a good uh, Disney heartwarming film. But the strange thing is that this film came out like five years after the events of this film. Right. The movie came out in 93, and it's about the 88 Olympics. Right. And when I was a kid, I remember this film coming out. This is one of those films that I remember things from the trailer, and I'll I'll mention them through the uh, podcast today. It's like you wouldn't really necessarily do a biopic about something from 2017 today. You know, sometimes people are like, it's too soon. Like, all those Afghanistan-Iraq war films that came out in, like, 2006, they all flopped because it was like, it's too soon. People don't want to see this stuff yet you know they didn't want to see world trade center by oliver stone a couple years after 9 11 like vietnam films came out in the 80s and 90s you need a little time to process this but i'll say that i remember at the time i really didn't know this film but then again you know we were like 13 years old when this came out right but you had seen it before I had seen it before. I don't know if I saw it in the theater, but I definitely saw this film uh, early on in the 90s. I probably like rented it from Blockbuster or may have even been Captain Video for me. Oh, okay. Well, if the captain had it. What was your local video store before Blockbuster took it over? I can picture it in my head, but I can't remember the name. There were a few small mom and pop places. There was one called Z Video that didn't really have a great selection of videos, but we would go there because they had really good candy and they had 
I think it was a Neo Geo arcade machine in the back. So we did go to Z Video a lot, though not necessarily for videos. Okay. But this film, um, it came out on uh, October 1st, 1993. This film had a $14 million budget, and it opened at number three with $7 million. But interestingly, it uh, it wound up with $68 million domestically. So that's almost a 10 times multiplier. Wow. And uh, $155 million worldwide. So that's a 22 times multiplier. I mean, this film made a lot of money, I think. Uh, the cast is mostly unknowns. Uh, John Candy... You know, he has a supporting role in this film. I couldn't imagine, you know, he demanded tens of millions at this time. So, you know, it's a real tight film. It's really sold on the story. Right. And while I was watching this movie, I was wondering how much of this is real and how much of it is close to what actually happened. And I do have to admit, I was a little disappointed when I looked it up after the movie was over. And so much of the movie is just pure fiction. Like, there are a handful of elements that are real. And I mean, just sort of like the broad strokes, you know, four guys from Jamaica competed in the Winter Olympics and that turned heads. Like, that's true. But like, the people who competed, they're not these characters. It's really mostly fiction. Yeah, and you have to take liberties with certain things, and uh, obviously we don't know the dialogue between these guys, and you have to maybe uh, play up a little bit if the dad was disappointed, and maybe play it up a little more, but I agree that from what I've read, these are just completely made-up characters, you know, the the Junior and Yule and uh, Doris, and did did you see what Sanka's uh, last name is? Well, yeah, they say it in the movie, that his name is Sanka Coffee, and the other guy named Yule Brenner... I thought while I was watching the movie that, well, they wouldn't have made that up. Like, the guy's real name in real life must be Yule Brenner, and they kind of make, like, one little joke about it. Like, oh, you mean, like, the famous actor? Yeah. And then that's it. Why would they make that up? But no, they did. There was no guy whose real name was Yule Brenner competing in the Olympics. Why did they name him that? Why did they name Sanka Sanka Coffee? Like, It's just bizarre. But you know what's really interesting is when they start this film out, it's got such a great 90s, like, early hip-hop. Did you notice what the Jamaicans are drinking? Did you notice they're drinking this thing called Ting? Do you know what that is? Uh, That's a Jamaican beer? No, it's a Jamaican soda, a grapefruit soda, and it is fantastic. If you're a fan of, like, Fresca, but Fresca is, like, a sugar-free one, Yeah. basically Ting is, like, the non-diet version of Fresca. It's delicious. Like, orange. Orangina, but for grapefruit juice. Okay. Uh, I don't love Orangina, but I do very much like Fresca. Uh, You should have brought some ting over here and we could have drank it while we were talking about this movie. Oh, I suck. Uh, Podcast host, fail. Thanks for nothing. Uh, But the movie starts off with Doris, who is a sprinter, and he wants to be in the 1988 Summer Olympics, but there's a qualifying race and this other guy trips And he falls down, but he also knocks into Doris and this other guy, uh, who is Yule Brenner. And the guy who trips is Junior. We find out who they are later. But one guy going down basically takes three guys out of the Olympics. 
Right. And, you know, for context, I mean, the sprinting in Jamaica, that's one of the Olympic sports that they are so known for. Of course, uh, Usain Bolt was world famous, but these guys are at that level and they want to compete to be in the what's presumably the 100 meter, 55 meter dash. When I went to Jamaica, there were no fewer than like six billboards with Usain Bolt, like advertising everything. I mean, this is so huge. So this isn't really just like they want to go to the Olympics and they didn't quite make it. This could make you just a superstar in Jamaica. So it's not that they just lost, but they were kind of, you know, they were tripped and you feel so bad for these guys. And Doris's father is, uh, he was a former Olympian himself. So Doris is talking to someone, a former Olympian, and the former Olympian, uh, you know, he feels bad for him. He's like, oh, yeah, that's too bad about what happened to you. And he happens to mention something that years ago they talked about how Jamaica's never entered a bobsled team into the Winter Olympics. Yeah, and Doris's friend is telling him that a friend of your dad had this idea about doing a Jamaican bobsled team using sprinters because the whole thing with bobsleds is that you need to get off to a really fast start. You need to push the bobsled really quickly. If you have sprinters, then they're going to be really fast and they're going to be able to push you very quickly. And then we also see that Doris's friend Sanka is known for doing this push cart contest and he's really good at it so it sort of makes sense that Therese and Sanka would team up for this bobsled team but Therese needs to go to this guy who is a friend of his dad that's Irving Blitzer played by John Candy and Irv has no interest in helping Therese he has no interest in going to the Olympics and you know coaching a bobsled team he doesn't want to do any of it but when he finds out who Therese's father was, then he's a little bit more open to it. And they do like a like a meeting where they're going to find two more guys because it's a four-man bobsled team. And when he shows this video, it's a film strip actually, of what it's like to bobsled, everyone runs out. Because doing a bobsled is super hard. It's super dangerous. I forget what the exact quote is, but it's like if you're in a bobsled accident, your bones don't break. They shatter and you can kind of see that you're going like 80 miles an hour down an ice slide in a metal tube. If that thing tips over, you could do horrific damage to your body. Oh, people do die. I mean, that is the difference between the summer and the winter Olympics. I mean, I can't think of anything right now. I mean, the only thing I can think of is when we were children, uh, Greg Luganis, he kind of smashed his head on a diving board. That was kind of a freak accident, but generally you're not going to die at anything in the Summer Olympics. But the Winter Olympics, I mean, remember there was a competitor that died on the skeleton or the um, or the luge a couple of years ago in Canada. Uh, he died during one of the trial runs. I mean, these things are deadly, deadly sports. Uh, skiing is a deadly sport. Uh, sure. You know, bobsleds, it's not something to be taken lightly. So Irv, he plays this little film strip about bobsledding. It's kind of a funny scene because when they turn on the lights, everyone is gone from the theater. And it was a packed house before then, except two people show up. You see this big guy, Yule. Uh, he's one of the other people that tripped at the uh, competition. But then surprise, surprise, you also see the guy that tripped Doris and Yule, Junior. He shows up too. Right. Junior is the one who actually fell down and he knocked Doris and Yule down with him. So Yule 
hates Junior. He doesn't want to be on a team with him. And he he was saying, yeah, I'll do it, but not with him. But no, they both have to do it. They have to team up. And I think it's honestly even fair to say that that relationship is the one that has the most growth in the movie. Like the way Yule and Junior start off hating each other. Well, it's really more that Yule hates Junior. But then by the end of the movie, they respect each other. Because, uh, you know, Doris and Sanka are already friends. Um, but Junior, I assume the reason they call him Junior is because he is very much uh, known for being the son of a very rich guy who does not approve of Junior doing this running thing. And he let him do the qualifying race, but he tripped. And so now you have to go and get a real job. But Junior doesn't want to do that. He wants to go and do this bobsledding thing. And they're trying to raise money to go to the Olympics. And they're doing like all of these crazy things. There's a kissing booth. I know we talked about it when we talked about She's the Man, about how like kissing booths are just kind of a weird thing. Uh, But they're doing all of these things to raise money for the Olympics. And they don't have enough. But because Junior comes from a wealthy family, he's able to sell his car. So then they have enough money. And Yule is like, A little happy about that. Still doesn't like Junior, but he gives him respect for getting them to the Olympics. And his father not only told him to get a job, his father said, I've gotten you a job at this firm in Miami. Presumably, he is just going to blow off this job and he's going with them. And now we get, which I believe it's... um, You know, George Bush signed the uh, American with Disabilities Act in 1990. I think he signed the Montage Act of 1991 that says that all sports films in the 90s required to have a montage in them. I mean, there were montages before the 90s. Yes, but this required a montage in all sports films in the 90s. I don't think that's true. But there is a montage of the guys going down the hills and they're like they're practicing. And the joke is that it's a bobsled team and they're going to need to learn how to bobsled. But they're in Jamaica where there is no ice because it is a tropical warm environment. And they are just doing the best they can with what they have. There's a funny moment when Irv puts Sanka into like an ice cream truck because, hey, you're going to have to get used to the cold. The three other guys are outside like eating ice cream, but then Irv opens the door and you see Sanka and he's like freezing and his teeth are chattering and one of his dreads actually like is ice and just kind of like breaks off. It's a cute little Disney gag. And then they wind up, uh, they wind up in Calgary. Uh, Irv, who we know he was a former champion, but he's not really into bobsledding anymore. And he goes to the U.S. team and he basically begs them for a sled. And even the U.S. team is like, oh, hey, Irv, you got some nerve being here. But we still don't really know why he's, uh, you know, not really liked in the uh, bobsledding community. But um, the guys now have a sled. And these guys, like you said, they've never seen ice or snow before. So they don't even know how to walk on ice. They played it for gags. But it's probably very frustrating for these guys because they have to learn a sport before they're going to be on the international stage. And it's got to be a lot of pressure. Yeah, they definitely like play up the whole they don't know what ice is. They don't know what cold is. When they first get to Canada and they're at the airport and they go outside and then Sanka like runs back into the airport and like bundles all the way back up before he goes back outside because they're just not used to the cold. 
that is one on a very long list of things that are not true. Apparently, the guys who really competed in the Olympics, they were in the Jamaican military, so they had traveled and they had been to colder climates before, so it was not a complete shock when they got to Calgary for the first time. But they're in Calgary for a long time. They're doing training runs. There's lots of different training runs before they get to the actual qualifying race. But we see that the other competitors from other countries do not like these Jamaican bobsledders. They think they have no right to be there. Again, that's another thing that is fiction. Apparently, all of the other athletes were very kind and hospitable and welcoming to their Jamaican competitors. And apparently, that's sort of like the Olympic spirit. Everyone who's there is an athlete and worthy of your respect. I don't even see why they'd really care. If these guys suck, who who cares? Right. And, you know, I thought it was a little interesting that they hint at the fact that these guys are facing some racism along the way, that people don't like these black athletes doing a quote-unquote white sport. They just kind of hint at that a little bit here and there in the movie, and then reading about how that's pure fiction and all of the athletes from around the world were very nice and welcoming to these uh, Jamaican bobsledders. That kind of made me go like, oh, well, then why did you make them have this hostility and, uh, you know, deal with that? And of course, the reason is because it's a sports movie and there needs to be obstacles and they need to overcome and they need to prove their worth to everyone. And, you know, I guess this is the first time to mention it, but there's another film I'm going to talk about later. Uh, it's called Eddie the Eagle, and it takes place at the same Olympics here. It's about another person that's really not expected to be in this Olympics, basically a, a British ski jumper. They, they tell Eddie the Eagle, like, this isn't a game. You will die if you do this wrong. Someone must have told these guys, like, you know you can die if you do this thing wrong. There's such an obvious other way to, to make them feel like, yeah, you guys really shouldn't be here. That's a good point. I think maybe it was just easier to just make the East Germans be the bad guys. I agree. There's a bar fight, you know, when the East Germans are taunting them and Junior is very passive and he he doesn't want to get into any fights and he's not really used to standing up for himself because his dad's always bossed him around. But Yule gives him a pep talk and says, you don't need to take any crap from these guys. You should stand up for yourself. You're a strong guy. Oh, no, he says, you're a bad mother. Right. Like, you know, it's like, oh, I guess it's Disney. You can't say it. Yeah, exactly. And it's sweet. They're becoming friends. As they're uh, doing their training runs, there is a part I do remember from the trailer. And that's when Sanka, he can't get his helmet on. And then uh, Irv, John Candy, he comes and just like punches it down on his face. And he goes, oh, thanks, coach. Right. So then the guys have to do a qualifying run. And they had said earlier in the movie that it has to be under a minute two. But then they change the rules and it has to be under a minute. And they are able to do that. They do the the course in 59.4 seconds. So it's really exciting. But then the team is disqualified on some stupid technicality that they didn't compete internationally before they came to the qualifier. It's a rule that's there, but doesn't really seem like it matters. Well, it's interesting you say that because after this Olympics, I'll tell you the true story, in order to make people like A, the Eagle and the Jamaican bobsled team, in order for them to say, 
you can't really go in the Olympics because, you know, it might be dangerous for you, you to do it. They made a rule that you did have to compete in other international competitions. They put these things in there, I think, for honestly, a good reason. You only want people that are, you know, not going to really hurt themselves to go in here. Right. But Irv thinks that they only kicked them out because he cheated. And like the guy that he cheated with when he was on the Olympics is now like on this board. And what he had done when he was in the Olympics as a competitor in the bobsled team was he added weight to his sled and that was cheating and he was disqualified and he brought shame to his whole country and he is, you know, a man trying to redeem himself. And he lost his medals. He won two legitimate gold medals in the previous two Winter Olympics. He had to forfeit them. Right. Again, things that are not true in real life. Apparently, it's fine to add weight to your bobsled. Like, your your bobsled's (laughs) supposed to be between, like, these two numbers for what its weight is. And so like if it's, you know, on the lower end of that spectrum, you add weight to get to the higher end of the spectrum. That is a completely legitimate thing to do. Maybe he added too much beyond that limit. I don't know, whatever. But basically Irv gives this really impassioned speech and he says, I cheated. Don't take it out on these guys. These guys never did anything wrong. And he does say in that speech of like, what, the idea of four black guys really bothers you? I think that's probably the most on-the-nose reference to racism in the movie. Um, But they reinstate the guys. They let them back in. And uh, Doris is really the guy who is in charge of steering. He has to memorize every turn. Earlier in the movie, Irv says that like the driver is the one with all the responsibility. And Doris really takes it seriously. Like the night before the first run, he's in the hotel room studying. He doesn't want to go out and celebrate and have one last fun night with the guys. But he's also really getting inspired by the Swiss team. He thinks they're amazing and he wants to do everything like them. And before they go and like push off at the start of the race, they count in Swiss, I guess, right? Well, in German, they count eins, zwei, drei. And, uh, you know, I mean, the Swiss are the, I don't know if they're the best, but it sounds like they could be, you know, if you said it was Norway or some country that has mountains and snow. That right. makes sense. Right. But then when they're doing their first race and Therese is like counting in German, the other guys are thrown off and they have a really bad race. And then they realize that they are proud to be Jamaican and they should race Jamaican and they should sing their their songs. They should have their own personality. And when they do that on the second run, they have a much, much better race even though it's only like three seconds faster, they place much higher and you see everyone watching back home in Jamaica and they're all really proud of their, you know, their sons and friends and boyfriends and whatever. And, and that's also straight out of the trailer too, where they're, where the announcer goes, where do these people come from? And then you cut to the people in Jamaica and they go, Jamaica! That's what you need for the trailer. That's, that's a good establishment line. Yeah, But it's also a stupid thing for a commentator to say at the Olympics. Where are these guys from? I mean, literally, you could know nothing about any of them, but know what country they come from 
because that's like what it says on their uniform. That's like the that's the one thing you should know. Right, right. It's it's designed for the people at home to chant Jamaica, but the appropriate thing he's supposed to say is, "Who would have ever thought, you know, the guys who have never seen snow before would do so great?" You know, it's something like that, but obviously they're from the flag that's like on their back and flashing <laughs> on the screen and the colors and you know Exactly. And yeah, so it's they do great that that day and they have one more run the next day and they're now in medal contention and everyone's kind of now giving them some respect. And there's a talk that Doris has with uh, with Irv and he basically is like, you don't have to tell me if you don't want to, but can you just tell me about the time you cheated? I don't understand why you did it because you legitimately had two gold medals. Like, why would you blow it? And Irv says, you know, I just had to win. I just, I was addicted to winning. And Doris says, I just want to get a gold medal. That's why I'm here. And, you know, you have the gold medals and all I need is a gold medal and everything will be fine in my life. And then Irv says what I think is the best line in the film. And he goes, if you're not good enough without it, you're not going to be good enough with it. And I think that really resonates. I could totally see someone who basically wins a gold medal and they're just crying because they have no childhood because that's what they cost them or something else. Like if your life is not going to be good enough without getting this gold medal, you know, just a piece of metal is not going to fix everything. And I'd be basically telling him, like, just be proud of yourself and you're here. You may not get a medal, but I got a medal and I'm not proud of myself. You're not going to get a medal and you have a chance to be proud of yourself here. I think it was one of those scenes when I watched as a kid going, Huh, John Candy's a good actor. It's it's a shame we lost him as early as we did. Yeah, and this was the last movie that was released in his lifetime. There were two more movies that he did that uh, were released after he died. One was Canadian Bacon. That, I remember that. Right, and the other was Wagons East. Neither of those are... I think considered like John Candy classics. I've never seen either of them, but um, this I think was like his last like really celebrated movie that he did. And yeah, you're right. It, it is a shame that that uh, he died so young. But they have their third run the next day, and the guys are feeling good. They get off to a great start. But this bobsled, which was a hand me down from the American team, it starts coming apart. There's a little bolt that's loose. And they crash. And it's a jarring scene. Apparently, they use some actual footage from their real life crash in this scene. But, like, you see their heads, like, they're in helmets, of course, but, like, still, their heads are dragging along this ice. And, I mean, it's terrifying to watch. And you figure, like, God, these guys are lucky if they don't get serious brain damage or become paralyzed or something horrible. But, they don't. They're okay. They're able to get out of the, the bobsled and they walk to the finish line because they started this race. They're going to finish it. In real life, they apparently just pushed the bobsled, but in the movie, they carry it and, you know, everyone starts cheering for them. Actually, it's a it's a slow clap that builds, you know, just the one clap and then everyone does it. Junior's dad is there and he's proud of his son. And yeah, they don't get a medal. They don't get the gold. They don't get the silver, the bronze. They end up coming in very close to the bottom or maybe even dead last among all of the bobsledders. But they are proud of themselves. Their country is proud of them. Everyone is proud of them. And they made history. I thought it was a very uplifting ending. It's almost what you'd say is the Disney ending of of this story. I don't know about that. I feel like the cliche Disney ending is 
they win the gold or at least like they win a bronze or something. Yeah, but I mean, this is supposed to be at least based on true events from five years earlier. They couldn't like just make him get the bronze medal. Sure, they completely made everything else up about it. Why the hell not? I guess, but I mean, it, it's like if they didn't call it the Calgary Olympics, you have to at least call it the Calgary Olympics. They couldn't just like make it somewhere else. Like that, I don't think they could do. But I do think it is a, a very uplifting ending. Uh, this is usually when I want to hear what you think about this film. But honestly, I don't think the listeners care at all. You think they only care about my son, Eli's opinion? I think they only want to hear your son, Eli. Okay, well, we did talk to Eli earlier tonight before he went to bed. Here's Eli's take on Cool Runnings. Eli, you wanted to join us to tell us your thoughts on Cool Runnings. First off, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. You know you're always welcome. I know you want to come back for a full episode. We're going to try to make that happen soon. But... You wanted to just give some quick thoughts on Cool Runnings? Sure. Okay. What'd you think of the movie? Um, I thought it was a good movie. I thought that it exceeded my expectations. I do not have very high expectations for Disney movies, so it definitely exceeded that. Why don't you have very high expectations for Disney movies? Well, I mean, they don't have very high quality, and they're always kids' movies, so never, like, actually that funny. Really? Are you talking more about the live action films or even the, you think all their animated things are also just for kids? All their animated things and all of their live action things. But you're not including Marvel, Star Wars, other things under the Disney umbrella. You're talking about movies that are just Disney? Yeah, like Disney and Pixar movies, not like companies that Disney just bought. John Candy, what were your thoughts on seeing him? Um, I like John Candy. I thought that he was pretty good in this role, but I feel like he could have done better. Interesting. What's your favorite movie with John Candy in it? Well, I haven't watched Planes, Trains, and Automobiles yet, but I really liked Uncle Buck. Okay, okay. And he's got a a small role in Home Alone. I feel like that's one of those movies you've seen a million times. Yeah. Did you know that John Candy was almost the next door neighbor that Rick Moranis played in uh, Ghostbusters? Oh... I think that would have, like, changed the movie. It, it would have been very different, but I think John Candy could have pulled it off, but it would have been different. Yeah. Oh, also Spaceballs. You like John Candy and Spaceballs, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. All right. Well, thank you for joining us for your quick hot take on Cool Runnings. You're welcome. Get it? Hot take, Cool Runnings. Not funny. Oh, you love my dad jokes. Good night, Eli. Good night. So now we know what your son thinks. So what do you think, Al? Does Cool Running stand the test of time? I think that this movie is really, really great. I really enjoyed this movie. I loved all of it. Like I said before, like the thing that I found disappointing about this movie was how much of it was just pure fiction. But I still think it's a very, very sweet movie. It's an inspiring movie. It's a great tale of overcoming the odds and accomplishing something that is really, really difficult. And I think that there is a lot of like stuff that feels real, even though it isn't real. The the hurdles that these guys face, the obstacles that they overcome, it feels like believable. And, and you're just... You have to root for these guys. You want to see them succeed. And they succeed in a way that is, I think, 
you know, atypical of what you would expect from a movie, but it's in a way that is believable. And while I'm disappointed that they made up a lot of this movie, I'm also just disappointed that I'd never seen it before. Like, damn, I should have seen this movie ages ago. Yes, I think it does stand the test of time. Also, by the way, in 2022, the Jamaican bobsled team is back. They haven't competed in the Olympics in over 20 years, but there will be a Jamaican bobsled team this year, 2022. So the Jamaican bobsled team is still around. This isn't relevant to the movie Standing the Test of Time, but I was a little confused about how this movie takes place in like 87, 88, and they were going for the Summer Olympics and like, you know, that first scene when they're running and junior trips, but then they end up at the Winter Olympics. I was like, well, if it was 87 when it starts, they were going to be in the 88 Summer Olympics. So then they were in the 90 Winter Olympics. No. Yeah, I, I looked it up that apparently up until 1992, the Summer Olympics and Winter Olympics were in the same year. I didn't know that. You didn't remember that? Not even a little bit. I never cared about the Olympics. I totally remember the Olympics would always be the presidential years. You'd get two Olympics every presidential year. Definitely in 94, they had a Winter Olympics for the first time that was without a summer. Yeah, I definitely remember when they did that. I think it was probably a good idea. Sure. As far as I can remember, it was like summer Olympics are on the leap years. And then the two years in between that is the Winter Olympics. So whatever. That, That wouldn't hold up today. That's set up. I was just a little confused by that, but I don't know about the Olympics, so that's on me. But James, what do you think about Cool Runnings? Do you think the movie stands the test of time? Um, a couple of the people cast in this film are, are just really well done. When John Candy is delivering either the speech to uh, Doris in the hotel room at the end, talking about the cheating, or when he's talking to the committee, trying to get them undisqualified, it really stands out from the other scenes in the film. I mean, you really have an actor here. The guy who plays Sanka, Doug E. Doug, I think he's really good. I, you know, he's he's just charming. I, I think the, uh, the actor that plays Yule, you know, he's kind of more a little stereotypical. He's the big guy, and Junior is a little bit more of a meek guy. Doris is perfectly fine, I think. You know, he plays the, the straight man, and you kind of uh, relate to him. But I, I just think Sanka's just really, he's fun. Um, you know, to talk about what you said about the realism of this film, you know, the based on true events, people talked a lot about this a couple of years ago when Bohemian Rhapsody came out. Apparently, they took a lot of liberties with that film. And, uh, you know, maybe he didn't even know he had uh, HIV AIDS at the time of Live Aid. And and another band member went solo before uh, Freddie. And they take liberties. But here's what I think about that. I go, okay. As a biography, maybe Bohemian Rhapsody is not a perfect biography. As a movie, it's a damn fun movie. And I'd say the same thing here. As a biopic, yeah, I I knew about the liberties that this film's taken. And watching it now, you can really tell. Like, it's just so stereotypical that, like, one of these kids is like a preppy kid, that the father has a cushy job for him in Miami. And it rolls your eyes a little bit how everything is so perfectly resolved at the end. The father's so proud of him at the end. But... It's a movie. Another film about this Olympics, Eddie the Eagle, I find that film a little bit more grounded because it's a little more like a single man's journey against the odds as opposed to like these people are trying to do it not only for themselves but for all of Jamaica and maybe to overcome possibly racism and and just other people not letting them into this sport. But um, it stands up. I am not as enthusiastic as you are about this film, but it stands up. It's a 
fun film. It's got that 90s formula. They suck in the beginning. There's a montage and there's a great speech that basically has them overcome the odds. I think there's extra bonus that it's, uh, you know, it's actually well acted and it's a tight film. What is it, like an hour and 30, hour and 40 minutes or something? Something like that. Yeah, you know, it should not be two hours. If you don't know the true story, you really don't know what's going to happen at the end of this. So I do like that. I like that the third act, while a little disappointing that they don't uh, they don't succeed, it's unexpected. But that's sports. And the sports isn't necessarily about uh, winning. And like Irv says, if you're nothing without it, you'll be nothing with it. So in the end, um, Cool Runnings does stand the test of time. Awesome. You know, it's funny when you're talking about like taking liberties, because I literally just the other day read a thing that Aaron Sorkin wrote where he was talking about just that, about accuracy versus truth and how if you're telling a story, it doesn't have to be exactly what happened, but it has to feel real. He was talking about a liberty he took with the social network that Mark Zuckerberg uh, was drinking to get drunk. And in the movie, they had him drinking vodka. But apparently in real life, he was drinking a beer. And so David Fincher wanted to change it to it being a beer because that's what he really drank. But Aaron Sorkin really felt like, no, it should be that he's drinking vodka because he was drinking to get drunk. And he was a college kid. And college kids just drink beer just to have a drink. And so he felt that the vodka was more authentically right for the movie, even though it wasn't technically accurate. I just thought it was an interesting sort of approach to how a screenwriter looks at those kinds of questions. So I thought that was an interesting piece. I do think the problem with Bohemian Rhapsody wasn't about the little details you mentioned. My big thing when I watched Bohemian Rhapsody was he was famously bisexual and the romantic relationship we see in the movie is with a woman. And like, then in the last four minutes of the movie, it's like, Oh, he had a boyfriend too. It's like, Oh, that's kind of like a postscript. And it might've been a little bit more interesting to see that side of it. And it just felt like, eh, we're not going to talk about that. Like, why wouldn't you talk about that? Everyone knows that Freddie Mercury had relationships with men. And that's exactly what I was talking about, that as a biography of Freddie Mercury and you know, possibly Queen as well, you could make the argument it fails there as the same way that as a biography of the 1988 Jamaican bobsled team. Kids, if you're going to do a history report on the 1988 Jamaican bobsled team, do not watch this film and report on it. You will get in big trouble. Right. Same way that if you try to report that, uh, you know, if you try to make the life of Freddie Mercury and base it on. Uh, well, there was that one time he had a mildly raunchy party that time. But this is a movie. This movie itself was entertaining for that. And I think that uh, Bohemian Rhapsody as a concert film, yes, you could find entertaining. But I, I could understand someone hating the film for that same reason. I'm able to separate those two. But I can see how people could fault the films for exactly the reason that we're giving it a pass. I'm definitely more critical of Bohemian Rhapsody. I think there is a difference. But you know that story well. You're more familiar with Freddie Mercury. If you had known even as much of Freddie Mercury that you know about the Jamaican bobsled team while watching this you'd be like that's not Junior's father well also there was no Junior so, right yeah <laughs> that, that I mean still. yeah and I think there is a difference between a movie that's marketed as a biopic versus uh this movie is inspired by actual events at a certain point you're splitting hairs but I think this movie does really work just as a movie 
And apparently all of the real Jamaican bobsledders from the 1988 Olympics, they love this movie. They have done interviews where they say, we love Cool Runnings. It's great. I mean, that guy's not me. None of those guys are me, but it's still a great movie. So it does have their stamp of approval. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we got to watch this movie. I'm not going to be watching any Winter Olympics. Maybe we'll put it on for the kids, but I don't really care. Watch the gold medal events of the half pipe or the figure skating or speed skating. I mean, at least watch the gold medal rounds. I mean, they're so cool. Don't tell me what to do. But you know what I tell people to do? I tell people to write us reviews on Apple Podcasts. And we got a really good one. It was back in December. I apologize that I didn't see it until just now. But a listener named Blaine Duncan gave us five stars. The, the title of the review is A Concept Followed Through. And Blaine wrote, This podcast relies on an excellent concept for a show. The good news? It follows through with knowledge and humor. Blaine, thank you so much. I really appreciate that you wrote that. I really appreciate the kind words. I thank you and certainly would encourage others to also write us nice reviews on Apple Podcasts because it warms my heart. It is a very nice thing. So thank you, Blaine, and thank you to everyone who rates and reviews us. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we have a very special guest coming on the show. My wife, Courtney Noah, is coming back on the show to talk about Moulin Rouge for our Valentine's Day episode. That will be the third movie that we will be reviewing with an exclamation point in the title. Quick, James, name the other two. Um, Airplane. Uh-huh, that's one. And, um, Pearl Harbor, exclamation point. No, there are two others. Naked Gun, colon, from the Files of Police Squad, exclamation point. And That Thing You Do. But next week, we're going to be doing Moulin Rouge. I guess is how you should pronounce it. Yes, that's the French way to pronounce it. I'm sure it's exactly (laughs) like that. I apologize to any French listeners that we have. Sorry. But in the meantime, of course, we want to hear from you. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we'll see you next week, everybody. Bye.